0: Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I just got done recording a bonus episode of Close Reads with my friend Christine Perrin. Christine is a poet. She has a new book of poetry out called Bright Mirror, which is available on Amazon. Um, she is involved with Classical Academic Press, which her husband Chris Perrin uh, started. Uh, and She's also taught at Messiah College. She has written poetry curriculum, um, and she uh, regularly speaks at Circe conferences. So she is a good friend of ours, um, and she is a fellow lover of Marilyn Robinson's works. Um, And she is in particular a lover of Lila, the newest book. Um, And in this conversation, she and I chatted about Gilead, Home, Lila. Um, Spoiler free. We didn't talk about any spoilers in Home or Lila uh, and really nothing even at the end of Gilead. So um, some higher level stuff about why these books are so great, the poetry of them, um, the metaphors in them, what what poets would be great to read along with. Uh, marilyn robinson a number of great topics and you i believe will find that there are just very few people that are more uh, wise and pleasant to listen to um, than christine perrin when it comes to talking about literature so i wanted to make sure that we we got her on close reads to talk about these books uh, as a little bonus episode so i hope you enjoy this conversation i sure enjoyed being a part of it um, and I began the conversation by just asking her how she first came across Marilyn Robinson and what her introduction was. And uh, this is what she had to say.
1: All right. Well, I was introduced to the books. I think, I think Zoe read it before I did. I think she got it for a graduation present. And then. Um,
0: and would this be Gilead? Did you read Gilead first? Gilead
1: first. Yes, okay. I read them in order. Um, and then, uh, from a mutual friend of ours, um, named Hallie. And then, um, I heard about it. I had two friends, one friend and both whose tastes in books I regarded highly. One felt that it was a very, it did not deserve the Pulitzer prize. And it was a very artificial book that was sort of, you know, had no plot and, and (laughs) didn't really deserve the honor. And one, um, just really loved it and was, was telling me certain was teaching it and was telling me certain parts of it that she loved. That was Agnes, uh, Howard. And, um, so I just decided, you know, it's, it's time to read this book. And, um, I started by reading it. Uh, I started with audible. I started listening, Mm -hmm. um, which I was glad for in the end because it does have a slow start. Mm Um, and, uh, in general, I, I think the books, you know, I think that Robinson is, you know, is as much a poet as she is a fiction writer. She's she's as much of a nonfiction writer as she is a fiction writer. She, she's truly remarkable. Um, I think she's like the leading thinker and writer of our time. But um, she these what you treasure in the books is not the plot. That's for sure. And, um, I think she's in that tradition of Willa Cather and Wendell Berry. Willa Cather is a lot more subtle and you, you sort of have to fill in the gaps of, you have to fill in the gaps a lot more with Cather, but she clearly just, you know, she loves the land and the stories come from the place. And, Mm -hmm. Barry, I think, is a lot more, you know, sort of country, folk, uh, southern, located in the south, and more oriented towards, um, even though this is rural, it doesn't feel as rural. There are elements of it that that don't include the rural. So, um, But her characters, you know, have this remarkable poetic... Um, insights about life. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking she probably, and I've heard her reference these before, but she probably has taken a lot from Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky um, Mm -hmm. in the sense that both of those writers give you a large chunk of psychological portrait. They're not too afraid to talk a lot.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, Hmm. Especially Dostoevsky, but he'll talk and talk and talk a lot about what someone's thinking in their head. Yeah. And, Robinson does that too. So those were those, that's the way I came. Um, I was astounded that she could tell me the same story three times. I mean, I Hmm. loved Iliad eventually, not when I first started reading it, Mm -hmm. I loved it. Um, But then as I went on and I think home was the hardest book for me, at least pleasure. Interesting. Lila was, Absolutely. I think one of the most phenomenal books I've ever read, I think because I had access to the mind of a character that I would never have access to any other way. And the Hmm. way that she gave us access is so remarkably complex, subtle. Hmm. She gives Lila all these beautiful things to think. Yeah. The fact that she has a very desolate, um, untutored life you know she Robinson just honors the human being and the capacity of the human and of the image bearing human um it's a remarkable portrait of what is possible for us even in the midst of the greatest suffering it's Job with such a different ending Hmm.
0: I love that you pointed out that that Robinson gives Lila such capacity for thought because it's interesting she she does seem to honor all of her character's ability to think like the human capacity to contemplate things yes and to make connections between things to make connections like in gilead there's this connection between beauty and suffering right which seemed like a paradox but are so linked together in, in in all of her work and she doesn't she doesn't let me me put it this way Robinson trusts the reader enough to offer that kind of complexity where the complexity of the character is largely in the way they think and perhaps not perhaps even more so than the things that they do because as you said the books are not well at least Gilead is not largely plot driven I would say the other two would you agree the other two are maybe a little bit more plot driven than Gilead is
1: just a touch not much yeah (laughs) Um, but uh, I heard Robinson say one time this great thing. She said that a well-stocked mind is, you know, that that you have to live with yourself. And if you hmm. stock your mind well, you will live well with yourself. There's, a, I, I'm not quoting it exactly, but there's just this sense that um, you do well to learn how to think because it's what you have for the rest of your life. Hmm. But I love the fact that. As you say, you're you're pointing out, you know, Ames, but also Glory, but also Lila. In some sense, their stocking of their minds was very, very different. And yet we all, we have the same sort of imaginative beauty, um, density, complexity with each of them.
2: Hmm. So yeah.
1: she's quite a respecter of persons.
0: Yeah, and... and- I love what you just said. I think you pointed out something that I hadn't, I mean, if I got you to that thought, it was purely unintentional. It was good luck <laughs> because you said that they all, their thought life or something like that is very different, but also sure. each of them are very rich.
1: Yes. and so they you, come you to said it differently. She, right. Uh, yeah. I love that. Um, you said she trusts the reader and I think that's true, but I also think she really trusts her characters that there's a sense in which, She wants, you know, I often tell students that, that metaphor and story, it's a way to work thought out. It's a way to think. Hmm. And I sense Robinson taking on the great thoughts of all times through these characters. And she wants that space. She wants that time. She doesn't, and she believes she'll do it justice though of course she thinks it's bottomless
2: yeah um yeah. Huh.
1: with this character and she does it justice
2: do you
0: do you mean i just want to kind of dive into that idea a little bit more do you mean that yeah. that when she trusts her characters that she trusts, trusts them as vessels for the ideas that they that they as characters are rich enough and deep enough and capable enough to be adequate vessels for the ideas that she's trying
1: to get across. Well, I the I think I did express it that way. I I'm a little hesitant to call them vessels because they're so real to me and right. they're so um they're so alive and honestly I I have been rereading them this fall because, uh, I want them to help me with something, you know, there's Mm. something in my life that I'm working on and I have a strong sense that they can help me. Um,
2: Mm.
1: so they're so alive to me that I, I fellowship with them. Mm. Um, I had a friend tell me once that he, prays for George prayed for found himself praying for George Steiner, um, who is a, a writer and literary critic. And um sometimes I pray for these characters. They're so real to me. And I or I ask them questions or hmm. I I write down things that they think and say. So I definitely think that she used those spaces well to think about predestination or to think about um about Job's question, um, of, of suffering, um, to think about the prodigal son, um, Hmm. you know, these huge central biblical themes. And she just takes a whole book and a whole character to think through them. So it's like, she creates these amazing canvases. Um, and the character comes first, but the character meets a grand idea and does it. Yeah. As much justice as one person can, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: Do you think that she ever... Um... So oh, talking about this this idea of being vessels, you said you were hesitant to use that, that word or that idea. Do you think that she ever drifts towards um, the characters being too much of a vessel and too little and not alive enough as individual characters or do you think that she avoids that entirely? Is that what you're trying I guess is that what you're trying to say? Oh,
1: that's a really good um good question. Um
0: And one I, of the things that I think Well, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, well, I I guess when you when the book starts you're afraid that that's true of John Ames. Right. right. He's just a vessel of thought. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But I think that by the time Gilead ends, you know that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then I don't think you have any question at all in the other books that that's not the case.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this then. That, that, um, that speaks to what you, you said a little bit ago, that at first you didn't love Gilead. And it seems like it's a, it's a hard book for most people to love at first, that you have to kind of linger in it. Mm -hmm. you kind of have to like let it drift over you and um, all those things that you sometimes have to do with difficult challenging books Mm -hmm. Um, especially books that are not plot heavy and that are a little slower Um, do you think that's why it's difficult what you're saying that sometimes it feels like he's just a vessel and not a character um, and that you have to kind of let it take its time to get you to where he feels like a full character or is there there something else about why it feels difficult to love at first
1: well, I mean, I really like the way you put that, and I, I do think um, it does take time. I, I definitely think he does it. I, I, now that you've asked me this question, I want to go back and figure out where it happens for me. But hmm. um, he, he is a full, thoughtful person, and I guess as you start to you know, see him figuring out how to inter- interact with people, how to interact with Lila – you know the kind of uncertainties that he experiences um maybe that's where he becomes more human and less of a thought um vessel but yeah. um i guess i think um i i think the other thing that it's hard to get over is what my other friend was saying which is just that it it feels so artificial it feels at first like oh you're writing these letters to a 7 year old boy and you're dying, you know, so it, it feels a little bit like the conflict is so constructed and so, um, maybe grand, but also ordinary and not, not something that you can feel.
2: Yeah. And,
1: and, and so I, I think just that artificiality, you're very conscious of the artifice.
0: Hmm. That's true of many great books, isn't it?
1: I think it is absolutely. A Dostoevsky would be one.
0: Yeah, it was one I was thinking of. I mean, even if you think about, um, y- you know, um, the Great Gatsby, for example. You know, so there's a lot, I think it's very true of a lot of American American literature um, that you often are, you often feel like the artifice is is kind of bullying you in some ways. If you, but then that's why the great writers can. I don't want to say use it, but they can, they, well, they use it artfully. They, they, they craft it into something, um, in which it's more than the artifice or the artifice is, is, is allowing them to say something deeper. Um,
1: yeah. I wonder if a good metaphor, I mean, as you're talking, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor and I was thinking of grafting, like grafting skin or grafting a, a, probably even skin, but a, a dead, you know, a tree yeah. one tree onto another yeah, yeah. where it just starts to come to life. And, mm. and, and I, maybe that's part of the boldness of the book, you know, that she would dare to give us a book with so much instruction <laughs> and so little delight at first and so much artifice and just trust that it would come to life almost like Pinocchio or something, you know, that it would come to life. It is a real boy. It's going to be a living tissue. And, um, but you kind of, I don't know. You just, I think this is true with a lot of great books. You you just have to push through and take someone's word for it or something. Hmm. And then, then the lights come on and, and you have to stay with this character, but she's definitely one of those great writers that doesn't excel at plot either. It's not just that she, was bold. It's also that she's much better at character that for yeah. her character is plot.
0: I, I, I sometimes imagine that this is one of those books where she had a great deal of confidence in herself. Like you can kind of feel the confidence that she has in, a, in her own ability to write a sentence or to think deeply. And I don't mean that in like in, in that she's prideful, just that there's a natural confidence about her that, that kind of comes on the, comes through on the page. And yet at the same time, she must've been surprised in some ways that it was as successful and well-received as it was. So that kind of
1: dual thing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my friend who's a portrait painter says that she's surprised every time that she can do it again. I mean, she's a world-class portrait painter. She's, she's done remarkable work, but every time she's not sure it's going to happen. And this is Marilyn Robinson, 2004. Um, 13 years ago, I think she's in her seventies now. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, she's taught at Iowa's, uh, writer's workshop, you know, she's had a long, it it took a lot to get to this place. You know, she wrote housekeeping and Mm. that book was one that could never win the Pulitzer prize. And most people can't get through. It's so poetic. It's so, um, loosely tethered, (laughs) um, Yeah. Outside the mind, you know? Um, but yeah, so she, I agree with you. I think she just had to have a lot of confidence in, she has done so much thinking in her life. Her essays are absolutely astounding. I mean, I really cannot get over, uh, both the kind of earthy, I'm a real person. I'm a citizen like you. Um, I have griefs and, uh, Crosses to bear. I am a Christian, and I'll tell anyone that. I'll even defend the fact that I believe in predestination, which is the least popular (laughs) theological concept in the world. And you know, but I'm also this (laughs) person who's uh, an incredible writer and and thinker. So I, I think you're absolutely right. It took a lot of confidence, and yet there was probably still great doubt for a while.
0: Yeah, you. I, I wonder how long for someone who is as gifted, she went a long time without publishing anything between housekeeping and Gilead. And of course, I don't know if... I read a, I read in the... Um, did you read her interview that she did or the conversation that she and President Obama did that was in the New York Times?
1: Yes, I did. I've, I've listened to several interviews of hers, and, and that was one of them.
0: And in, in it, at one point, she says something about how when she she was surprised when this character came to her. She was sitting in a hotel room waiting for her son sometime around Christmas time. Um, and this, the character came to her and those opening lines came to her and she started writing and it was surprised her. And, um, I wonder what must have, what she must have tried and not failed at perhaps, but not, not felt right about between Gilead and, and housekeeping. <laughs> because since then, of course she's written so much not just home and and Lila, but also three or four books of essays have come out, and they're all so rich and 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 I don't know what she's talking about half the time, honestly.
1: <laughs> well, they're surprising and they're deeply engaged. I mean, she's she's so liberally educated. You know, they're yeah. deeply engaged with with culture, with science, with history, and she doesn't put those ca- those ideas in silos. You know, they're mm-hmm. all. Interacting with each other, Mm. with yeah, that's a great point. Um, And that comes to bear in these books, I think. But, but you know, it's also hard for someone of such fierce intelligence to lay aside the intelligence. I would think Mm -hmm. to then just, um, or to let that intelligence serve um, a lowlier purpose, because you just never feel like she's trying to show off in these books. You know, even when she's. talking about theology in with Jean with John Ames, um, even I mean, I just so I, I what a relief it was to meet a character who, unlike most of the people we know, was so slow to try to defend a theological concept that he had based his life on. Mm. Um, and she does so much of that work that Dostoevsky does of, you know, of doubt, of, of self doubt, of, mm maybe criticism of God and just thinking about, you know, his Jack and, and Jack's questions for John Ames, his godfather about, about predestination, about someone being able to change about redemption. And then Lila and her deep struggle with hell and the thought that doll was not going to be in heaven. And therefore, how could she Lila receive her baptism? And I mean, it's such a—it's not just that little speech that Ivan gives in Brothers Karamazov. It's it's a book-long struggle, and it's a three-book-long struggle. Hmm. So her ability to sustain struggle and thought and to make thought not just thought, but, um, you know, to deal with the heart and, and the circumstances and complexities of trying to grapple well and honestly— with an idea, but also understanding that ideas, you commit yourself to them or you commit yourself to a path. And and it has certain consequences that I've just never met anything like it. I've never encountered that. I, Kristen Laverne's daughter, Sigrid Unset does a really good job with characters that way, these long sagas. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. that was an influence on Robinson. I've never heard her say it, but just these sagas,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, she sticks with characters a long time, but not with thought the way Robinson does, that mm. sustained thought. And in these times of such a, a lack of the ability to talk about anything for more than you know 60 seconds um, <laughs> and for people to kind of sanctimoniously put themselves in the right camp and, and act as if it's so easy to know what to think about something,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's such a tonic. Such hmm. an antidote to our sickness. Hmm. Yeah,
0: because it does feel like Ames, for example, he when he in these letters that he's writing to his son, he presents these ideas that he feels he feels like he might know the answer to, but he doesn't. He doesn't come across. He, he's not trying to say to his son that he has all the he knows everything perfectly well. That he doesn't still have questions, and you see that, for example, in the conversation between in Gilead between um, John and Jack and Lila and mm-hmm. Older Ames when they're talking about predestination, it's midway through Gilead, which I find interesting. Um, as an aside, I find it interesting that that's right in the middle almost. But you know, Jack Jack brings up to John. He asks him about predestination, and in the end, you know, John John sort of says there are some things for which I don't have all the answers to Um, some questions for which I don't have every answer to and sometimes the mystery is is a mystery and we have to let it be that way and I think that that idea comes across so often in the way that Ames is trying to explore these ideas and and talk to his son about them Um, he has answers but he doesn't Feel like he has the final answer, or he doesn't necessarily. He he he's willing to admit that he might not have the final answer, and that he wants his son to continue thinking about them, to continue exploring them, to have his own rich thought life, and -hmm. hopefully the letters can kind of participate in that thought life, or contribute to it, or or offer some wisdom to guide that thought life, if that makes sense. But he doesn't. He's not saying I am the only one with an answer here. You. He's sort of saying you might have an answer that's better um, Mm -hmm. at some point. And I think that unless, you, unless there's that, I don't. It, it, you could you could say well he's hedging his bet so to speak, but a, you know a really rich thought life also is open to the idea that there are, are other paths that a question could take you than the one you're on right now, um, and I think that there's like an honesty and a um, a realness to that. Mm-hmm. That is not that is that is that is um, I guess it's uncommon in most books that are built around the thoughts of a single character, because mm-hmm. so often our, we we have to be able to trust our characters right or the narrative or the narrator and if the narrator is questioning his own thinking then usually we are going to question him, but she's a master at creating characters who's who question their own thinking, but in in a way that is honest enough that we can still relate to and believe in that character.
1: Yes. And I think partly because they do not ignore the hard questions or the thought that it takes to take the question on. It's an undertaking, you know, this Mm -hmm. is something that you, it's like a backpack that you put on and you walk with a long time. And, you know, he's, he's clearly, I mean, in fact, this time around when I just, I just finished it again this week. Um, and I felt at that moment when Jack was asking him out of need, um, I understand all the baggage in the relationship and such, but I just felt so disappointed that he didn't try to give him more. You know, that Ames didn't try to give Jack more of an answer
0: during the predestination conversation.
1: Yeah. Because Jack was asking with a great sense of urgency and need. Mm-hmm. And I mean, fortunately, Robinson let Lila respond, and Lila gave the perfect response. You know, people can change, she but- said.
0: But isn't that isn't that why Ames is a good character though, Just from so. a craft perspective?
1: Yeah. Absolutely,
2: yeah. Because I agree.
0: he has this rich thought life, but as a character, he, his flaws can come across in a way that makes him feel true.
1: Yes, and, and it's a hard character to have flaws to find flaws for. You know, I mean, here he is, an old preacher who just sacrifices his life for his congregation, how was he going to be a flawed character? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, his flaws with Jack, as painful as they are, they are so important for his character. Absolutely. he There would be no Pulitzer Prize without that, that flaw.
0: I think one of the things that maybe is challenging for some people, though, is that the way those flaws come across, really the only way they can come across, given the given the, you know, construct of the novel is for them to come across through his own humility in a sense. So his flaws are represented to us by him being humble, which I think probably bothers or can run some people the wrong way. Does that uh, make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. But I guess, um, maybe what doesn't come through in flaw comes through in conflict because as it goes on, you begin to kind of feel yeah, yeah. like, To not have control over the life of your beloved, to lose again a beloved child and wife, because that's what happens to him. You know, he loses them in childbirth, and now he's losing another set. And he has no control or influence. You know, he compares them to Hagar going out into the wilderness. And that becomes poignant, I think, to the reader, you begin to feel it, but it takes you a while to feel it. That's when it stops being artificial. And when you say, Oh, okay, maybe he is too good as a character, but his situation is pretty bad and hard, even though it's ordinary and natural.
0: Which is the key to the, to what's going on there though. It's, it's difficult and bad and hard, but ordinary and natural at the same time. And you don't often get, books are not, great, great books, or memorable books at any rate, are not often about the normal.
1: That is such a good point. And not only that, but I feel that um, one of the things that that is raised in these books um, is the fact that we've got different levels of suffering. Uh, we have Ames's suffering, which is as you just said, ordinary, natural, normal life. Um, we have Jack and Glory's suffering and Boughton's suffering in home, which is uh, it's the next step up, right? I mean, it's um. It's the prodigal, the grief of the prodigal who never comes home, really, not really comes home, is never at peace with himself. And to be the parent and the sister of that um, is excruciating. And then you have, but that's still fairly common. And then you have Lila, and she's the most desolate character I feel that almost anyone has ever written. Dostoevsky has worse characters, but they you just know they're miserable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But Lila, oh my goodness, she has suffered so much. And she suffered in a way that doesn't exclude us. So that you huh. read her and you you just feel the ache of you know all of your own sadness is tied to loneliness or desolation, you know, whether it's for you or for someone else. And that's remarkable to me, too. How is it that this person who suffered like Job, who never even had what Job had, just Mm -hmm. lost everything, you know, how is it that I can still identify with her and I can still feel myself as I'm reading her story? astounding to me Hmm. and and that gradation of suffering is not judged you know ames is not judged ridiculous because lila has had so much more suffering
2: Hmm.
0: Hmm. um which of the books would you once someone's read gilead like we are on the show right now um would you read home or would you read lila next
1: well i i kind of just am a stickler for going straight through um, because I I do think that that's one of the most remarkable things about these books, that there are three of them, and that you can go straight through and read a story three times. I prefer Lila by far, but I don't know if I would if it weren't the third. I mean, hmm. I know I would, but I think the, the effect is greater reading it third, and I just— I really believe the sequence matters, so I kind of recommend pushing through. Home. I know it's your favorite. I would love to hear why home is your favorite, David.
0: Um. So, I I part of it is stuff that I don't know that I want to talk about because it would have to um, sure. because if people haven't read it yet. We'll have yeah. to do an episode for people on home and get, and Lila for people who have read them. We should do that. Actually, we should come back later and we should do okay. a, bo- a bonus episode where we talk about those two with spoilers and, you know. okay. um,
2: fair.
0: but, um, so that's part of it. Also, I think maybe, um, when I read it the first time I was, um, a senior in college had just gotten married, was thinking mm-hmm. about all these things about starting a home. And, um, there were so many challenging things about, um, like what the idea about the idea of a home about being you know the choices that jack makes as a young man and being at that age i think it probably represented something that is mm-hmm. that is uh not always quantifiable you know mm-hmm. so the first time you experience a book you know it's there's just something like i said it's unquantifiable there's something about the mystery of of experiencing a book that way um that i can't explain um mm-hmm. so that's that's a big part of it um, and then there are other things about the craft of it and the choices that she makes and the characters and things like that that I, we should talk about when we can talk about the with with spoilers. Um,
1: I'd love that. I'm rereading it now. It's a little bit of a discipline to reread it because it's very sad to me. But it's well, I feel the same way about
0: Lila. Like Lila was is the hardest one for me to get through. Yeah. Um. And I and I'm not sure entirely why. So we'll have to we'll have to do that sometime and talk okay. about that.
1: I did weep the whole way through Lila. I got it the week it came out, Mm -hmm. a gift from my friend who introduced me to Gilead, and she would be a wonderful person to talk with us. And then I um, just finished it, and I turned back to the first page and read it again. Mm. Um, There was something about the pain that um, was not despairing um, in Lila. I have a question for you about mm. home that yes. I don't think is a spoiler. Okay, And that is, do you think, I mean, it's not a spoiler because we already know this in Gilead. Uh-huh.
2: Um,
1: do you think that there's something about Jack Boughton that represents some kind of central struggle that young men go through that kind of has to do with whether or not you're going to take on the care and responsibility of others you know a family yes. or you're going to be autonomous
0: so when someone asks me if something in a book represents something my my first instinct is to uh, like as a writer is to is to say well i don't know that the author was intending it that way but i think yes sure. <laughs> sure. um so i don't know if she was meaning it to be that like i don't know if that was purposeful but i Think that these things still happen regardless of whether or not the author intends them to, because of the nature, because yes. of the nature of literature, but um, and art in general. But yeah, I think so, and maybe that is part of why, part of what got me as as a newly married, graduating college, thinking about starting a home, all those sorts of things.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it, I think it's about will you take on the care of others. Um, so we know from Gilead that Jack chooses not to take on the care of the baby. Um, you know, from when he was a teenager, twenty or whatever yep. he was, we know that he has abandoned his the care of his family. He even didn't come home when his mother died. Um, and there's a care, there's the actual physical care of helping someone who is sick. You know, the carrying of them, so to speak. But then there's mm-hmm. also the caring for the family that comes in, that comes inherently in being a part of a family, mm-hmm. the like the, the care that, that comes in being a participant in a family to, to, to be a participant and to play a role within a family is to care for that family unit, so to speak.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so he abandons them in all those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, and I often wonder It. Not would he have done it again, do it all over again if he could when he was young. I don't, I don't entirely know how to answer that question. Maybe I should think about that when I reread it. But um, did he do it on purpose? In a way, he did. But in another way, I often wonder: Did he get carried away by the pressures of of who his father was and who his godfather was within the community, and? Mm-hmm. Not that that justifies his actions, but you know what role does does those kind do those kind of relationships and those kind of pressures have on on young men? Because there's a young man is stri- you know there's such a desire for independence that, mm-hmm. um, and I suspect that that never really goes away when it comes to the authority figures in your life <laughs> mm. to some degree or another, and that mm-hmm. that you. I don't know that I would say you struggle against it, but you struggle with that. And if your fi- if your father is a public figure in some way, then that probably mm. that probably does um, um, challenge you in, in certain ways. And so how you how you decide to respond to that and live your life with that in mind is is certainly is certainly always something that I'm interested in literature. And I, I mean, you know, that's it's certainly something that is on my mind just in my own life my my dad's a fairly he has a public following somewhat (laughs) Mm -hmm. and there's people who rely on him and who trust him and things like that so it's like every time and then working for him every time I open my mouth in some ways that is hovering over the words that I say Mm -hmm. so I certainly feel for him in some ways um and wonder (laughs) how he would react differently if, if circumstances were different or if he was, if he could do it over again. I don't know if I answered your question.
1: No, that's just rambled. I just rambled for a while. No, you didn't. You gave me thoughts about this that I hadn't had before. And um, I have thought about this a lot. I've worked with young men, um, on, on writing projects, you know, honors thesis, their senior year, on subjects like this, and and so I've thought about another context, but it just occurred to me because of things you said that that was something that was being struggled with, and I think as well that just both home and Lila deal so much with the subject of well, all three of shame,
2: yeah, and what yeah, shame is and yeah,
1: and how mysterious it is in a sense. I mean, there are reasons for it, but mm-hmm. you know, even when there aren't reasons, sometimes we have it, and and we don't know we don't know what to do with it in ourselves we don't know what to do with it in other people and i think not everybody struggles with shame to the degree that others do and um i just love robinson's uh deep understanding of that human problem hmm. that drives so many people and is part of everything they do and say and can't do and can't say yeah. and can't hmm. be touched, can't be. Um, and uh, just how people are so brave in their lives and we looking on, we mistake them. You know, we don't even know how brave it takes to to do what they're doing. Hmm. Um, and Robinson shows us that.
0: It seems also like the it personal shame is a big part of the books, but also the it, other people's shame. Yeah, like How do you respond to someone else's
1: exactly. shame?
2: Exactly. Um,
0: so you've got people who are ashamed of their own actions, but then John, for example, is ashamed of things in his life. You know, resp- quite ways he's responded to things or decisions he's made or even um, sermons that he's given. But, yeah. But he also has— a degree of shame about his grandfather, um, about he, he or he doesn't he doesn't know how, he has a hard time knowing how to respond to the shame of his father and his grandfather to mm. to John and to to old Bautin and how he resp- and and, uh, and Bautin's shame about his own family and things. You know, how do you respond to somebody else's shame? And then that can cause that can just be the cycle of shame that happens,
1: it which can. makes it so
0: complicated.
1: It, it can. And I remember having a conversation with you a number of years ago about shame um, in the South and uh, kind of asking you to explain it to me from what you had seen growing up in the South. Um, and, you know, I think it becomes cultural as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's primarily what these books are about. But there is the depression and and the drought and and there is the it's a distant presence but there is the the presence of um, racial uh, discrimination and shame and um,
2: well I so don't
0: I, I don't think that it's a distant theme in this in these books because. You've got the whole his grandfather and John Brown and the Underground Railroad and the abolition movement and all that, but then also So they're They're trying to fight against Slavery, but then the way that they do that leads to shame so you can be fighting a just cause but the way you fight that cause is wrong Right, and that leads to shame too. So it's this cycle. this all this complication I remember that conversation now that you mentioned it by the way
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It was very helpful to me. I really appreciated it. You know, I, I feel like I want to just read something that will not at all be a spoiler. Um, go
0: for it. Yeah, please do
1: mind. Um, for she, she has this kind of continuing question of like, why bother? What is all this for? Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, but but right after she, she sort of makes a statement like that, she, she thinks this in her head. Mm-hmm. When she sat in the doorway at night with her knees drawn up and her arms around them so that there was warmth against her belly and her breasts, she sometimes liked it all well enough, the stars and the crickets and the loneliness. She thought she could unravel the sounds of the river. um, unravel the sounds the river made the flow over the rocks where there was a little drop into a pool the soft rush of the eddy now and then there were noises some small thing happened and disappeared no one would ever know what it was she thought all right if that's how it's going to be if there had not been that time when she mattered to somebody she could have been at peace with it and that's now she's at the end. She's kind of going back to her thoughts of loss. But just mm-hmm. a moment of such pure, almost Whitman-like lyricism.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, Um In the midst of her struggling with memory, loss, despair, existentialism, um, it is such a classic example of why this is such beautiful literature because it's not trying to do one thing it's so full and the mind is so teeming with beauty and thought and um and it's and as i said before it's a kind of thinking and a kind of mind that is it's enough like ours that we recognize it but it's been through so much and we would never actually be able to inhabit it without Robinson giving us access. Because Hmm. even the characters in the book, even her husband, John Ames, can't inhabit her mind, can't inhabit the richness that we as the reader inhabit. And that seems to me this privileged position of the reader in these books, too, is that we know so much that the characters in the book don't know.
0: Would you say that going back and rereading Gilead, having read the other ones, has... Um, enriched your experience with Gilead?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think I'm just going to keep reading them, you know, my whole life. Yeah. Um, so
0: that brings me to this thing Tim talks about. He says, Tim McIntosh, he says, um, I don't know if he coined the term or where he got it, but we were reading Brideshead Revisited as our previous book on the show. And mm-hmm. my dad loves that book. So he came on a bunch of episodes and Tim called that my dad's heart book. Ah. Uh, um. Which is a fun and fascinating uh, and probably true idea all at once. Um, would you say that, that these books f- are, are books that you would call heart books?
1: Lila is.
0: Hmm.
1: Another way that... Um, and I say that, you know, I understand. it. it d- Lila is so set apart for me, but I understand that the beauty of my reception of it is, um, tied to the other books. So, Mm
2: -hmm. yeah, right. (laughs) uh,
1: You know, Dickinson had this phrase that was, uh, a little different from heart book, but, um, she said she called certain subjects, her flood subjects. Huh. uh, Emily Dickinson did. And I um, I don't think I've heard that. It's a great, you know, it's death was a flood subject for Dickinson. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, but desolation was a a flood subject.
0: How did did she mean the metaphor? Like that things would, the idea would flood out of her?
1: No. Or that that it would overcome her? Flooded into her. Yeah. That it was just this subject that overwhelmed her in her lifetime and her thought life. Hmm. So that it kind of took her over as a flood might and dominated her thinking. So I think for me that um, loneliness, exclusion, um, forsakenness, desolation, um, that is a flood subject that makes Lila a heart book. And um, if if you had told me that somebody could do it, could take on a subject like that in this way, and that there would be any redemption in this life, Lila's life, I wouldn't have believed you. I I don't know. I couldn't have imagined it myself. Hmm. And so part of the work that it does is that it it gives, you know, I feel like it gives me a taste Hmm. of the eschaton. I heard this great phrase, um, eschatological stones being thrown backwards out of heaven that reach us. And this book feels that way.
0: Hmm. I was going to ask you something related to that. Do you think that uh, um, it's rare to have a book, at least in the 21st century, it's rare to have a book that is so steeped in christian theology um christian thought um and christian characters that that resonates with so many people of so many different tribes so to speak um why do you think that these books and Gilead in particular, which, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, why do you think that they have been so well-received considering, considering that? Because, well, I'll just leave it at that. Considering how, how Christian they are.
2: Mm.
1: You know, the only answer I have for that is that I, I once read a, um, I once read a a short little write-up, By Gerald Stern, the poet, contemporary poet about Gerard Manley Hopkins. And he said about Hopkins that when we read, there were so many people that when you read their um, work, uh, if you don't subscribe to their ideas, you feel excluded. But with Hopkins, he said, you always feel included. And I I should find the book and find the quote. It's on my shelf here, but because I I really found it to be remarkable, Gerald Stern. uh, I don't know if he's practicing uh, Jew, but he said that about our most one of our most religious poets. Hmm. You know that he felt included, and I I really think that we feel included in because Marilyn Robinson has done justice to what it means to be a human being and not try to get to the point or the message or, yeah, yeah. Um, or even offer us too much consolation. Hmm. I think that's a huge part. I think the desolation and doing justice to it, the hmm. landscape, the relationships, the family life, the um, loneliness of the individual, the, loneliness of the questions we ask ourselves and can't answer the doubt that we live with the unfinished nature of our lives and our business with other people that the book seeks to um, amend that's so human. Hmm. So we're all included.
0: It is certainly not the kind of Christian art that is sentimental, I suppose.
1: Not in the least.
0: <laughs> um, well, I've kept you for, looks like over an hour now. So <laughs> I will let it's you go. The best
1: hour of my day.
0: <laughs> Do you have any <laughs> final thoughts you'd like to offer? Um, let, well, let me ask you a question if you could, off, if you could just respond to this last thing. Because I, I wrote this down. You are a poet. Um, and by the way, everyone should go get your book of new poetry. Um, oh, what is it? It's bright. Um,
2: mirror.
0: Bright Mirror. And it's available on Amazon, right? It is. Well, we have a copy and I've been reading it and the other night I was my wife and I were just reading our separate things in, in bed and um she was not even reading your book and she randomly said, Christine Perrin's a good poet, by the way. <laughs> well, uh somehow it's... it ran something had stuck in her head enough that she said that. Um huh. Wow
1: What a what a privilege it is to have you read my poetry.
0: Well, okay, so as a poet, um what, what about Gilead in particular, since that's what we're reading on the show, stands out to you as a poet? You mentioned earlier that it is a very poetic book. Her writing is very poetic. It doesn't have the traditional um, trimmings, the traditional things that you think of with, with a novel. The, 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 it's not plot heavy and all that kind of stuff. And you mentioned that it's very poetic. So as a poet yourself, what stands out about the poetry of her writing? That would be, especially that would be worth us looking out for as we finish the book.
2: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: it certainly reaches a pinnacle in terms of poetry in Lila. Um, so that's just a footnote. Um, the,
0: the prose does the writing. The
1: prose does, yeah, yeah. yeah the language, uh, but even the thought.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, however. Um, I, you know, I want to say it's not even just the way she uses words. It's the poetry of thought. There's something about the the lyric ideas or the, the lyric way in which she captures an idea. And it's not just an idea isolated from the person, from the land, from the moment. It, it's as if she's doing all those things at once. And that's a little, you know, poetry does everything at once, too. But, But in this case, what's happening at once is the character, the circumstances in the character's life, um, the land, uh, the moment in the story, there's a kind of that lyric aha moment where you, you realize something significant, uh, and it acts kind of as an umbrella over everything you say for a little while. That's sort of what a poem does. The lyric poem does Hmm. that happens a lot in these books. Um, you know, I'm thinking about certain moments that just stick out to me. Uh, For instance, things like he says, you know, there are a thousand reasons and ways to live this life. Hmm. And he often comes to these moments and they're very organic in the thought and the character and the place where he is in the story. But they're things that you remember because they're poetic thought. And I, Hmm. someone told me that, Hmm. People talk about Shememon's theology as poetic theology. I mean, I think it's non-Orthodox that talk about it that way. But, um, like, I've heard it taught at schools as poetic theology, Hmm. even Protestant schools Hmm. and Catholic schools. And um, that is sort of what I'm talking about. You know, when you read Shememon, he's just doing something large all the time, and he's conscious that he's firing on all levels. Hmm. And I feel that that's the way that... Robinson does it. And so those moments, you know, I think it's kind of interesting to read a chapter and then just stop and see what, what strikes you in it, in terms of what you remember, not looking back, but what Mm -hmm. do you remember? What are the moments that are lyric moments in the story? Hmm. Um, But she's, she's quite good with metaphor too. Yeah. And
0: and, and Ames does a wonderful job of, or she through Ames, I suppose, does a wonderful job of presenting his ideas. Yeah, through metaphors that help us see them. Yes. Okay, is there a last question then? I said it was the last. This this actually is the last question. Is there a poet or two, say, that that you would recommend as uh, worth reading alongside or after Marilyn Robinson?
1: Well, when you say worth reading alongside or after, do you mean that someone that would—can you just clarify that a little bit? Uh,
0: Maybe an ideal companion.
1: Ah, Okay
0: is that more precise? Uh, So, um, I think that,
1: that, uh, you know, I think BH Fairchild's book, Mm. um, the art of the lathe is a Mm. good companion to Marilyn Robinson. I mean, she's clearly read all the American poets, uh, of our tradition and she's borrowing from them. She, she has a lot of Whitman in there. Um, but but BH Fairchild is someone who's living right now and writing about his own youth and um and writing about the heartland of America and also about the conflicts of what does it mean to be a man how how do you use the word beauty in a sentence and be a man essentially how do you appreciate art in Italy and come from the middle of uh you know come from Kansas or and have been brought up in a machine shop and, and just those, hmm. that kind of clash. Um, so I think he really compresses a lot of this thought. I don't want to say it's equivalent or it's a substitute or anything like that, but I think he's a big companion.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, I'm going to go get that book on the Amazon then art of the lathe, right?
1: The art of the lathe. And you know, it would be great for your book club to read aloud together just sitting in a circle going around. You have so many people who love poetry and it's just a powerful book to hear because your intelligence, as you listen to all of the conversations the poems are having with each other really abounds when you read it that way.
2: Hmm. That
0: sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Um,
1: I would not have rather been doing anything else.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I think we should pursue an episode that is, uh, on the home and Lila, um, that, that is okay with spoilers. So we can talk about that a little bit more and, um, and then people can read it whenever they, whenever they get around to or listen to it whenever they get around to reading those books if they haven't yet. So let's try to do that sometime in the next few months.
1: Okay. I'm up for it. If you have time. I do. For this, I have time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks uh, so much to Christine Perrin for joining me in this conversation. Hope you enjoyed that. We will be bringing you more and more bonus episodes, uh, interviews with authors where possible, uh, with other experts on an author even conversations on poetry and things like that. Uh, And those will all be available to people who are patrons of this show. Uh, If you have not yet heard about this, we have a account on Patreon. So if you head over to patreon.com slash close reads, you can find out how you can contribute. There are four levels of of patronage you can, you can participate in. Uh, at the $2 level, we have the skimmer level. The $5 level is the bookworm level. The $10 level is the bibliophile level. And the $20 level is the savant level. And those are all monthly. Um, you can get all kinds of cool close reads, swag, participate in polls, uh, listen to bonus episodes, Q&A episodes, all that kind of stuff. If, if you can participate, uh, if you can contribute and partner with us, we would really be grateful. Uh, we started this show... I've said it before, about 60-plus 60, 60 episodes ago. We were doing it monthly. Um, by popular demand, we moved it up to weekly, and we love doing it. We love being a part of this uh, community. But um, it is not necessarily cheap. Um, there's there's lots of time it takes go, to go into it. Um, there's editing, there's software, there's tools, there's equipment. Um, Tim and Angelina have done it as a labor of love. They Just because they love talking about books and they love, you know, being able to participate in the community but i would really like to be able to toss something their way um, to make it a little bit worth their while so um if you could contribute we would be really grateful and again that's patreon.com slash close reads to learn how you can do that Um, if not don't worry about it we love being a part of this community with you and um if you can't make that work we totally understand and we still want you to listen we still want you to be a part of this community um but if you can, we would love it. We would appreciate it. Um, and we will try to deliver great content to you every week um, and sometimes more often than that. So uh, that's it. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all your comments and all your reviews. We, we read all of them. We really appreciate them. And we're going to keep trying to, to improve um, the, the quality of close reads each and every week. Um, so with that, uh, for Tim McIntosh, for Angelina Stanford, and for this episode, for Christine Perrin, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern, saying farewell on the Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening.